We are on? Okay, we are on. Uh, let's turn our Bibles uh, to Isaiah 63. Uh, as we come to this chapter, it kind of has three movements to it. Uh, one, verses 1 uh, through 6, is uh, the day of vengeance, um, judgment, upcoming judgment. Uh, the second uh, movement, 7 through 14, is just grace and mercies and goodness. And then 15 through 19 is a prayer uh, for repentance. So, interesting, we have all that just in, in one chapter. And uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it's always relevant, always resonates, always has something for us. And that's why we're here tonight, Lord. We're here because your word is food. Lord, it's our spiritual life. And Lord, how we need you to be speaking to us, encouraging us, confirming to us, guiding us, counseling us. Lord, we thank you for the incredibly comprehensive nature that we find, Lord, as we turn to the scriptures, your Holy Spirit uh, taking the things of Christ and, and applying them to our lives. Lord, we thank you. We have this nice, cool place tonight. <laughs> on a very warm night, and we thank you for that. We thank you for a beautiful summer day. Lord, uh, your, your mercies to us, Father, in so many, so many ways. So, Lord, we praise you. We praise you and thank you and ask you, Lord, to take now uh, the things of the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, may they be spoken to our hearts. Uh, even though, Lord, we are in the Old Testament, Lord, in this book of Isaiah, and how good it has been, Lord, how rich it has been, and as we, Lord, uh, Lord, come to the end of it uh, very soon, we pray that, uh, Lord, you would just be uh, speaking to us in just a, a very special, uh, directive kind of way. And so we ask these things, Father, in Jesus' precious name, amen. Uh, so here in chapter 6, remember in chapter 61, we had a reference there to the day of vengeance. And uh, that was in 61, that was... Part of the sermon of our Lord Jesus Christ, his first sermon there in Nazareth in the synagogue. But you remember, he uh, he ended with the acceptable year of the Lord, and he didn't go any further with the day of vengeance because that has not happened yet. That will happen during that seven-year period that's that's going to come upon the, the world. And it's in you know when you think about it, we are so close. We are so close to the day of the Lord. I think if we knew. We would probably say, let's just huddle up right here. Let's just huddle up here and have a prayer meeting. Um, it would probably scare us, I think. You know, that's why I think there's a lot of things the Lord doesn't show us. It would just sort of scare us. And uh, But sometimes I think maybe a little scare is, is maybe a good thing to get, get us maybe, perhaps, maybe back on track. So we have here the mention of the day of, uh, of vengeance here. Uh, not a lot of the details. It's without the details. But he's giving us really, in a sense, another another piece of the puzzle uh, that will fit in with Armageddon and the uh, the second return of our Lord. And this here kind of fits in. It kind of dovetails to uh, Revelation chapter 19, uh, the second part of that uh, 19th chapter, 11 through 21, uh, kind of fits in here. You can reference that or you can write it down. We're not going to turn there. But as we open this up, uh, Isaiah says, Who is this who comes from Edom? Now, he's taken back by the fact that, that he, it's the sight of somebody he does not recognize. Of course, it's the Messiah. It, it, it's the Lord. 
But it's the way in the sense that he's coming because he is a sort of, he's, he's covered in a sense by blood. He has come basically from Armageddon. Uh, when he comes down to Edom and he's coming up toward Jerusalem, it's sort of a mop-up operation at that point. He's finally coming to deliver Israel. Uh, remember, Zechariah told us uh, that Jerusalem, the houses would be rifled. The women would be raped and ravished. It would just seem to be the Jews were finished. Uh, Satan was probably drooling about that, thinking that finally he can destroy the Jewish people uh, to keep the prophecies from being fulfilled. But, of course, we know that would never happen. Uh, and that's at that moment when the Lord Jesus Christ, he comes, he reveals himself. They finally accept him. The Jewish nation finally accepts him. Remember, that's why, basically, uh, uh, that's when it introduced the church age. It was the rejection of Messiah, nationally speaking. You know, God was still saving Jews. The early church was all Jewish. Uh, but but it, But this would take us into this age of grace now that we've experienced for close to 2,000 years. Uh, we don't know how much longer. I think we're coming very, very close to the end of this age of grace, uh, this special dispensation, a special time uh, where the gospel is going out to the entire world. And that was one of the problems with the Jewish people. They didn't recognize that. They couldn't see that. Uh, we'll see that. We're going to talk a little bit about that bias and prejudice uh, that they had because Peter even had that. Uh, we're going to see that uh, Sunday when we look at, you know, the gospel going out to the Gentiles there and uh, and Peter just having issues. He needed a vision. And even, again, the chief apostle, uh, when we get to that point of chapters 9 and 10, um, the, the early church is roughly about 10 years old. Uh, and it just reminds us and shows us that even though that we can walk with the Lord, you know, for as much as 10 years, and, uh, and and even to experience what the disciples and the apostles experienced, and yet to have bias there, yet to have little prejudicial issues. Um, and it just shows you the grace of God works in our hearts and our lives over a lifetime, over a lifetime unearthing things, bringing things out, dealing with issues, refining us. Remember, he's making us more and more like himself. And as he does that, he's going to deal with us. He's going to expose things. Um, and that's a beautiful thing, that if God exposes something to you individually, allow him to do that. Say, yea and amen, Lord. Because what happens is that if we don't allow him when he's trying to expose something to us, and he's, he's gracious, he's, he's a gentleman. Um, and, and individually, he will work with us and show us things about ourselves, show us our foibles, um, our issues and things that he wants to deal with. Um, and so as we do that, we allow him to, to step in and work and change us. Um, but what happens if we refuse that, we end up being exposed. We might be exposed by, by you know, to other people. Uh, because what happens is if we don't allow him to change us, it's going to keep coming out. It, you know, whatever the issue is, it kind of comes out, you know, whether it's, you know, you know self-righteousness or judgment or pride um, or, or some inordinate desire or something that would grieve uh, the Holy Spirit. Now, here he comes. He's coming here uh, up to Jerusalem. He's coming from Edom. And Edom, basically, remember this, they are relatives. They were relatives, okay? Who is Edom? Edom is Esau. Remember, Jacob and Esau, okay? They were twins. They were brothers. They were born to the patriarchal family. But again, you know, um, uh, what was interesting is you remember the story there in Genesis that uh, Jacob uh, tricked his brother, he deceived his brother, and stole the birthright. 
And little did Jacob know that that resentment would grow into such a bitterness and a hatred that it would never go away. It would just proliferate that entire nation of people because that nation of Edom basically uh, you know, came from, from Esau. Uh, Isaac, excuse me, but uh, uh, Ezekiel, over in chapter 35, addresses it, and there's uh, four verses there that really speak of it. And in, in 35, I, uh, excuse me, Ezekiel is speaking about judgment on Mount Seir. And Mount Seir was sort of the capital. Um, you know, that was, you know, when you talk about Mount, Mount Seir, you're talking about Esau, you're talking about Edom. And he says this, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it. So the Lord here is speaking to uh, Ezekiel. And say to it, thus says the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against you. I will stretch out my hand against you and make you most desolate. I shall lay waste, I shall lay your cities waste, and you shall be desolate. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Now here's the reason why in verse 5. Because you have had an ancient or an everlasting hatred um, and have shed the blood of the children of Israel. They were relatives, they were brothers in a sense. By the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, when their iniquity had came to an end. So again, that just that resentment. That's the thing about resentment and bitterness. You know, when it builds up, you know, within our lives, if it's not dealt with. The Bible speaks about a root of bitterness. You know, it gets down into your soul, into your life. And then it says uh, that it springs out of your mouth and it defiles many people. That's why, you know, it's important for us to not allow resentment uh, even petty resentments can grow into bitterness, and then bitterness can grow into a just a, a hatred, um, and and eventually that hatred is going to it's going to be released and it's going to come out. Uh, and and how sad that was that here, the the thing that that Jacob had done, and again, uh, I'm sure he repented of that. Uh, the responsibility was Esau's, but sometimes, um, you know, the the things that you know, that we can do, they can have long lasting, you know, impact in the lives of, of other people. And, uh, and again, a hatred uh, that went toward from the Edomite people uh, toward the Israeli people. And, and, and the Lord says it's, it's, it's ancient. It's not only ancient, it's everlasting. It's a hatred. And that's a satanic hatred. That's a satanic hatred in a sense that, God, that, that Satan has for God and God's people. It's, an everlasting, it's never going to go away. And that's the thing about hatred. It is, it is a powerful emotion uh, just like, in a sense, love. You know, love is an, a wonderfully powerful emotion, but so is hatred. But it should never find a place, you know, in the heart of the people of God. We have to, we have to confess those things. We have to give up, you know, resentment. And just little petty things can really fester and become something ugly. So who is this? Now, again, the Lord, the Messiah, is going down there into Edom uh, to deal with these very issues. Uh, He's coming with, and, and Isaiah sees him as, he looks like his garments are dyed uh, from Bozrah. This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness uh, of his strength. So in this vision, he sees Messiah just as this incredibly mighty warrior, you know, coming from a battle covered with blood and victorious. He says, now the Lord says, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. He's always coming to save people. Uh, he said, I have, you know, uh, he said in the gospel, I have come to seek and save that which is lost. And so he's coming, you know, just like his work today is a work of salvation. You know, he's, he is saving people, 
uh, no matter what the case, even to the uttermost. But in this case, he is coming to save the Jewish people. He is coming to finally bring them into relationship, you know, with himself. Now, the question is in verse 2, why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads uh, the winepress. In other words, Isaiah is asking, where are you coming from and why is your clothing red? He answers it in verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone uh, from the peoples. No one was with me. And again here, you know, it's interesting too. This was he, this is he for who for the last 2,000 years has held out his hand of mercy and grace. Saving, giving his life, you know, to save mankind, to redeem humanity. This is the same one. But now he comes for justice. Now he comes for judgment because there has been, there has been that final Gentile that's been saved uh, and, and a final corporate rejection in the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why do not be surprised today when we find our gospel, our God, ourselves rejected. Don't take it personal. We tend to do that, don't we? That's why a lot of times we hold back. You know, we, we don't want to feel rejected. We, you know, um, and, and that's part of our human weakness, isn't it? That we want to be accepted by everybody. But we're not going to be. If, if we're going to really line up with Jesus Christ, we're going to get a lot of rejection. We're going to get a lot of pushback. Uh, you know, eventually somebody accepts the Lord. But for the most part, by and large, we're going to get, you know, rejection. Because they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting the truth. They're rejecting him, and we have to grapple with that. We have to understand that and not take it personal. Because if we take it personal, we're never going to share the gospel. We're always going to be fearful. We're always going to hold back. We're always going to be taking things, you know, just in a personal kind of way. And we really do need boldness. We really need spiritual boldness to step out uh, and to share the gospel with people. Because that's what they need to hear. That's the truth that will set them free. And we have to realize that. And, and you know, when we think about... Is it worth me, you know, is it worth me being offended to give them the gospel for their eternal salvation? It is. It's worth me being offended, even though I don't like to be offended. But it's certainly worth it because um, a lot of times, I think most often, most often more than not, uh, initially when we share the gospel with someone, they don't want it or they, you know, well, we'll maybe think about it or ponder it or maybe we'll talk about it later, whatever the case may be. But a lot of times it's the seed, it's the power of truth. Because remember, the Bible says, you know, before Christ, we're darkness. And when truth comes in, light comes in uh, to a dark place, oftentimes it's not very welcome. And so we need to allow people, give people the latitude in a sense uh, to really ponder it, to really think about, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, But I think it's important for us to remember we need to put that seed there. Uh, we need to be able to, you know, you know, to share the truth. He says, uh, <clears throat> he says, no one was with me. In other words, he doesn't need any help. Um, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. That, that's they're, they're my garments are not dyed. Their blood. Remember, it says that the blood will flow from Armageddon, from the Valley of Jezreel, 180 miles down into basically the Jordan Rift. And it will be, can you imagine this, as high as the horse's bridles? I mean, it's basically about five foot high, a flow, a river of blood flowing down in there. 
And, um, and again, as the Lord comes to, to judge, you know, these armies of the Antichrist, as they, come, they have come down to destroy the apple of his eye. They have come to destroy his people. And uh, they're, they're energized really by Satan. And so the Lord, there's no mercy here. The, the, the time of mercy is now. The time of grace is now. Um, that time will be a time of absolute, utter judgment. And again, like we said before, we think about this because a lot of people, you know, when they read these kind of things in the Bible or hear about them, oh, God is so harsh. You know, why is he so mean? Why is he so judgmental? Listen, this time period is limited to seven years. This grace period is roughly about 2,000 years so far and counting. And he says himself, his mercy triumphs over judgment. His mercy rejoices over judgment. God is merciful. And that's why, that's why Peter says in his epistle, he waits. You know, his waiting is salvation, that, that people might come to know him. So even though, you know, we would like the rapture to happen tomorrow or, you know, uh, on those days when we wish the rapture would happen, he, he you know, he waits. Uh, he's got a, a higher purpose in it. You know, there are still people. You know, I, I think about our culture. I think about so I think about, you know, if the church was taken out like just today, I think about so many people, so many young people and, and what they're going to have to face. In the day of the Lord, I mean, it's going to be—it's going to be absolutely horrific, and that's why we pray, Lord, have mercy. Lord, you—you you are, Lord, you are mighty to save. Lord, we want to see—we want to—we want to see uh, that work of redemption, that salvation. We want to see the—that's one of the reasons why we want to see the one of the—I I remember years ago, uh, we were at one of the conferences, and Pastor Chuck uh, brought a theologian along with him. And, uh, uh, gosh, I forget his name off the top of my head. But anyway, uh, his, his whole, most of his writings and so forth were about revivals. And he talked about what happens in revival. And he says, once there's a, a uh, revival and the church is made alive, the next thing, it's not just, uh, in a sense, that the entity of the church is just, this, you know, to be blessed and, um, you know, to be wonderfully, you know, filled with the Spirit and all that. But, but he says, normally what happens in any revival after the church is revived, it's the evangelization of the society and the culture. And so before that's going to happen, man, God's got to revive us. God's got to pour out his spirit in a fresh and a powerful way. I pray that. Many people are praying for that. And one thing, if you've ever done any kind of reading about revival, one thing that precipitates a revival is prayer. As people crying out, uh, prayer meetings sometimes that go on all night and for hours, and people that just have a burden to just pray and cry out for God to work. And um, and maybe, I don't know. I don't know if we'll see that. I don't know if, if the revivals for America are over. They may be. I hope they're not. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, but it's very possible that that may happen. Uh, but our heartbeat, our desires, Lord, Lord Jesus Save many alive. Save, save many souls, Lord. And, but in order for him to do that, there has to be a, a, a move of the Spirit of God within our midst, within our lives. And just, a, a, you know, the result of that is, is 
God's people just freshly empowered by the Spirit, just taking the gospel and going in every direction. So he says here, <clears throat> I have... Um, uh, I have stained all my robes. You know, it's interesting. The unbelieving of the world t- today, when you think about it, they're convinced that what we talk about tonight will never happen. As a matter of fact, they mock it. P- Peter said they mock it. You know, they, they kind of laugh about it. Won't they be surprised? Won't they be surprised? Won't they be shocked? Um, and I pray they get saved before that happens, before they find themselves you know, one of the things I've always said, if you know, if you if you if you can't run with the horseman, how are you going to? How you, or if you can't walk with, you know, the walkman, how are you going to run with the the the, the horseman? Uh, a scripture out of Jeremiah there. If you can't get saved now in the time of grace, how are you going? Uh, how are you going to resist the antichrist? You know, during that particular period. And I know that we all have relatives and family and individuals that we deeply care about, um, and and keep them keep their the, their prayers for them on your lips continually. That, that God would work. But I, I know that there's a lot of people that have heard the gospel that when the church is taken out, they're going to be left behind. They will be left behind, and they're going to have to deal with that. They're going to have to deal with that, or they're going to... And it's interesting, too, that, that this whole COVID thing, it's been like a dress rehearsal for the end times. And one of the things that, that, that hit me like a, like a freight train was to see the whole world walk in lockstep. And it's almost as if it's a precursor, a dress rehearsal for the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast. We're close. Now, here's what he says in verse 4. For the day of vengeance is in my heart. Now, again, he refers to it only as a day. Remember the year, the acceptable year of the Lord. That's now. This indefinite year, this time period. You know, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day with the Lord. But here we are in this incredible, you know, grace period of the acceptable, you know, year of the Lord. But it's a day of vengeance. It's limited. Praise God. He's merciful. He's kind. For the day of vengeance is in my heart. The year of my redeemed has come. So finally those prophecies will be fulfilled regarding um, not only the nation of Israel, but the put down of the rebellion uh, of this world. And when we really think about, you know, the year of my redeemed has come, redemption, the, the price of redemption has already been paid on the cross. Been paid for the Jew, been paid for the, the Gentile, been paid for anybody who will simply receive it, humbly receive that, uh, that incredible Wonderful gift of redemption. I looked, but there was none to help. I wondered, but there was none to uphold. In other words, he's speaking about the fact that, that nobody, nobody can save themselves. That, that, that was the problem with, with, with the Jewish people and the law. Uh, God was demonstrating through that as hard as you could to try to submit yourself to all the rituals and do all the right things and try to perfect yourself, you simply, you cannot do it. Nobody can rescue. No one can redeem themselves. And it's only as we're saved by the the Messiah God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. And my fury, it sustained me. You know, God, and that was the biggest, biggest issue for the Jewish people. 
God taking on human form. That that was that was even today when you speak to the Jewish people, it's like they struggle with the Trinity. And you can't understand the Trinity. You can accept it. That's a beautiful thing. Isn't it interesting? There's so many things in the Bible. You cannot maybe plumb the depths and, and fully comprehend. But when you accept them by faith, God honors that. And I'll tell you what, once you accept it by faith, he starts giving you insights about the things perhaps that you, you, just, you couldn't understand. And there's a lot of things, folks, we just simply can't understand with our logic, with our rationale. We, we are finite beings, and we're trying to understand the infinite creator. But even, you know, just to understand sometimes the things that we read about in the Bible, we need the Spirit of God to, you know, to unfold them to the, us and reveal them. I've said this so often, you know, we can give the gospel to somebody all day long, but unless the Holy Spirit reveals himself, Nothing's going to happen. <laughs> it's a revelation, isn't it? It's a revelation of his, of, of his, you know, his person and his work. So therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. My own fury, it sustained me. I've trodden down the, the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury. In other words, just, just it, it, it's an interesting thing. I think sometimes you see it in politics. It's almost as if, you know, the, the thing about drunkenness, I grew up around alcohol. My parent, my dad was a working alcoholic. I loved him. You know, he took care of me. Uh, but I can remember just from a kid, the drunken parties. And it's the thing about drunkenness is, is you can't think right. You can't be rational. You, you can't be logical. And we're beginning to see that in the world leaders, in politicians. Some of the laws, some of the things that they stand for, it's like, where did they come up with that? What happens is God turns people over to their own devices, to their own wisdom. And the funny thing is, it's amazing, but I would, I would wonder how many laws and legislation have been crafted around the booze bottle, okay? As they get together and for hours to hash things out and, you know, they're slugging it down. God says, I've made them drunk in my fury and brought down their strength uh, to the earth. Okay, now we move into this, uh, this second movement here. And sometimes, you know, it can be hard to reconcile the attributes of God. People have problems with, you know, grace, the love of God, and the judgment of God. There's some, I don't know if they're really Christians, but sometimes I've heard uh, professed Christians, you know, some professed Christians, not, not that many, but I heard them say, well, how can, God, how can there be a hell? And when they look at Jesus in the Gospels, all they accept is that loving side of him. You know, what about when he cleansed the temple, purified the temple two times? It's interesting. It said he, he weaved a cord, he made a cord, and he whipped him. <laughs> I imagine there was, some, there was some fury in his face and in his eyes when he did that. 
And sometimes it's hard for us to reconcile different, like for instance, you know, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Uh, these are two very important truths and doctrines. Um, and sometimes it's kind of hard to just bring those together and reconcile those things. But there's a lot of things in the Bible that we can struggle with. And we see it here as we move into this uh, particular section regarding basically his mercy. And, and the word mercy in the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek translation out of the Hebrew. And oftentimes in the Septuagint, the word mercy basically is used interchangeably with love. And I think, I think that's, pretty, that's, that's pretty fair. That's pretty accurate. So again, reconciling his mercy and his love with his judgment. But again, they both exist, and they both exist in the perfection of God. Now it says here, <clears throat> I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord. Now notice why it's plural, not just the loving, the love of God or the kindness of God, but he puts them together, he sandwiches them together, and he puts it in plural. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord and according to all that the Lord has bestowed upon us uh, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercy, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. So the fact of the matter is, yes, he is a loving, kind, and gracious, and merciful God. But you know, at the same time, too, he has to judge rebellion. He has to judge the rebellion of man. And, uh, and yet, at the same time, he's judging. And this is going to happen during the day of the Lord. In a sense, it happens now. God judges people now. God judges nations now. He's done it in the past. But at the same time, he's in the day of the Lord, when he's judging the world and the rebellion of the world, he's saving people. And his salvation is the, is the greatest demonstration and extension of his love. And it's as if Isaiah is reminding of this after this first six verses, you know, of judgment and so forth. I, I says, I want, I want to mention, I want to mention the love of God. I want to mention his love, his loveliness, his loving kindnesses, his goodness, all that he has bestowed upon the, you know, upon the house of Israel. And, and, and remember, look what he says here. According to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. It's never by our performance, is it? It's always by his grace. It's always by his grace because that was the problem with Israel. It was all about performance. Do you ever sometimes get a little bit ticked when you've been really being good? You've been really being good You've had a string of good circumstances and situations, and and all of a sudden something nasty happens to you. And it's like, Lord, why, why? Why are you doing that to me? Why are you allowing that? I've been good. I, I've been serving you. <laughs> we and, and and we don't realize it. But there's times we're just sort of basing our circumstances on performance and, and God's, you know, our relationship with him. <laughs> and sometimes, too, you'll be a stinker. And he'll bless you out of your socks. 
Just to demonstrate that. I love you in spite of yourself. In spite of your failures. In spite of your setbacks. In spite of all the... You know, know, I think when we first get saved, we can tend to think, you know, well, Lord, you you save nice people. (laughs) No, we save sinners. And, and hey, I can appreciate people trying to be nice. I like nice people. And I think there's a lot of people in the world trying to be nice people. It's nice to have, isn't it nice to have nice neighbors? You know, that, 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 you know, decent people, nice people. But of course, that's not enough to get us to heaven, is it? We just have we have to reckon we have to realize and 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 um, reconcile the fact that yeah, we fall short. We fall short of the glory of God, and we need Him in our life. We need Him to save us, and that's why I thank the Lord. You know, and I've said this, and some people kind of look like, "What are you talking about?" He is saving us continually. Now, am I saying that if you make a mistake, you're going to hell if you don't, you know. No, I'm not saying that at all. But, but salvation is a whole lifetime experience, okay? Where, yes, initially he saves you, he saves you from hell, okay? But I think for the most part, going through life, he's saving us from ourselves. Saving us from the bad mistakes, the wrong decisions, the situations maybe we would put ourselves in. <laughs> he's intervening. He's saving us. He's protecting us. He's so good to us. He's so awesome. What a great and incredible God. That He is so proactive in our lives. I think he's so proactive we don't sometimes reckon that or realize, you know, how involved he is, you know, on a daily basis. I think, you know, as we go through the course of the day, and even though maybe nothing miraculous happened or whatever the case may be, I think it's hard for us sometimes to just sort of um, realize that he's been involved in our lives throughout the course of the day and the little deliverances, the little things that he just sort of dropped into our heart and mind, all the stuff we start thinking to do this or to do that. He's involved in so many different ways. And sometimes we may find it hard at the end of the day, well, I'm not sure what I can really thank the Lord for today um, as far as anything obvious or overt, uh, you know, some real special blessing. Uh, But the fact is there's all these little blessings that that we don't often see, that God is wonderfully working. He's preventing. He's protecting. He's providing. He's doing all these incredibly wonderful things that we may not be, uh, we simply may not be in tune to. He says, for he said, surely they are my people. Now, he's speaking here of Israel, even though they were not acting like his people. And again, that's grace, isn't it? Isn't that amazing, incredible grace? He says, and he says about them, children who will not lie. (laughs) What I love about the Lord, he sees us and he sees Israel for what they will become. Not what they are right now. And oftentimes, you know, we get tied up in knots as far as what's going on presently within our life, within our situation. But he treats us, in a sense, the Father treats us because we're in the Son. And he sees our ultimate perfection. (laughs) He sees that. 
And that's what he, in a sense, that he sees right here. And that's the thing about the Lord. Do you, do you know, do you know tonight, no matter what has gone on in your life, he has got great expectations for you. Because there are things he can bring to pass. There are incredible things that he can do. And all he's saying to you and me is this, trust me, walk with me, abide in me, fellowship with me. Like Paul said in Philippians 3.10, that I might know him, get to know me all the more. Sometimes there's been times where I just felt so convicted after I sat there and watched TV for a couple hours. It's like, yuck. You know? You just take that, you know, not that it's really horrible stuff, but it's just, you know, it's just the world. And you think about, Lord, I could have. You know, it's, I, I, I've been convicted oftentimes. We're just reading a, in men's prayer, uh, Psalm 1. And it said about his law that this, the writer of Psalm 1 would meditate in it day and night. And one of the problems, I'll be honest with you, it's not maybe it's not probably your issue at all. But as a pastor and studying the Bible all day long, it's like sometimes five o'clock comes, four o'clock comes. It's like I want to close the book and I want to, you know, I want something else. And I've been convicted of the fact at times where I haven't really meditated at night as well as the day. And I remember Spurgeon one time writing some this little thing about how we need to be careful at night because oftentimes that's when the temptations come where our guard is down we're not ready for those little temptations to come our way so he became we're told his their savior and i love this verse nine i've always loved this verse it's, it's such a wonderful truth now he's speaking here about israel in particularly and all the, the problems that they experienced, that in all their affliction, he was afflicted. You know, he so identifies his people. It's not just for them. I mean, he's speaking to them here. But, it, but it's also for us as well, that, that in our affliction, he is afflicted as well. He enters in. And that's what I think Paul was trying to say. That's what I think Paul was trying to say when he said, the fellowship of his suffering. And Paul came to realize that as a man who experienced suffering. And we've been talking about that. And we remember that's what the Lord had said to Ananias when Ananias was afraid to go lay hands on Paul. or He was Saul at that point, um, and he would be filled with the Holy Spirit and later baptized. But, you know, at that point, Ananias thought he was a hitman. And, uh, and, and the Lord convincing Ananias, he's saying, you know, he does not know the things that he will suffer for my name's sake. And Paul was a man who suffered greatly. We talked about that Sunday. We, we, we looked at some of the things. And he was a person who knew. He, he knew the fellowship of God was special. And that's why when we're in a, you know, at some point in our lives, folks, we're going to come into suffering. You can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. But don't miss the opportunity. Don't get mad. Don't get angry. Why is this happening? That, that's one of the problems with this American Christianity, this feel-good Christianity. You know, Lord, don't you love me? I'm not, you know, why am I feeling this way? Or well, why am I going through this? But to fellowship with him in it. I think sometimes we can go through things, but I also think sometimes we can grow through things. There's a lot of things that we can grow through. 
and we can benefit by and we can fellowship with him in the trial, in the difficulty, in the suffering. He identifies with this. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. Now, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? The angel of the Lord. Okay? It's, we, you can call it a theophany, or you, some call it a Christophany, but it's a, it's a pre-incarnate, um, you know, experience there that God has, you know, with his people, delivering them, helping them in some kind of way. And we have the Bible stories. We have the Bible stories where, where that is demonstrated. Now, notice what he says. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. You know, when you think about, you know, and, and you know, Jeremiah, the prophet, he was an individual. He knew God's mercy. And even in the most difficult time, because when you think about Jeremiah, it's sort of the end of the kingdom. Okay, it's the end of the kingdom, the southern kingdom. You know, they're about to go into Babylonian captivity and so forth. And, uh, and the book that he writes after his, his prophecies uh, is the book of Lamentations. And Lamentations means crying. It, it, it's it's the, the, you know, the brokenness, the, the, the repentance and so forth. And he, and he says this in, in chapter 3. Uh, I love this third chapter. There's only four chapters in the Lamentations. Oh, I'm sorry, there's five. And, um, but I love this section here where it says in chapter 321, this I call to, remind, to mind, therefore I have hope. Uh, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions, they fail not. They are new every morning. Oh, great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. And it is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I also like verse 32 through 36. And it says, though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion. According to the multitude of his mercies or according to the multitude of his love. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. He does not, he's, he doesn't have a design to crush them under his feet. All the prisoners of the earth are to turn aside the justice that's due a man uh, before the face of the Most High, or to subvert a man in his cause the Lord does not approve. So again, the, just the mercy and the grace of God, he doesn't, he doesn't care, it doesn't benefit him in any way to grieve someone or to afflict them. A lot of times the afflictions that may come, the afflictions that came to Israel were basically the result of their own sin in their own particular condition. But again, when you read that third chapter there of Lamentations, what a, what a beautiful picture we have there of the grace of God, even in the midst of a difficult time that we're told there by Jeremiah. So he bore them. We're back to uh, 63. He bore them and carried them all the days of old, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. This, he, he means in a continual kind of way. And so he turned himself against them as an enemy. And he fought against them. So, you know, God in his sovereignty, what he did is he used the enemies of Israel to chastise them, to correct them, to judge them, to bring them to a place of brokenness and humility. He, he's sovereign. He can do that. Uh, they didn't see that. They just, you know, that's the thing. That, that Paul tells us about a spiritual insight is our struggle, our battle is not against flesh and blood. 
And even though the enemies of Israel came against them, it was God. It was God speaking to them. I, you know, honestly, as I think about this, who are the enemies that are going to bring down America? I think it's got to be China or Russia. I think even China before Russia. Who are those enemies? America has to be judged, folks. It has to be. It's arrogant. It's rebellion, rebellious. It keeps thumbing its nose at God. We see that going on, you know, within our culture. I'm not talking about the church. I'm not talking about every individual. But in a collective way, that's the collective mind of America. We don't need you, God. But it's interesting that God had to judge Israel. And if you remember under uh, King Manasseh, it was called the slaughter of the innocents. Slaughtering innocent children. Uh, There's other references to it. And judgment had to come because of that. The, the, The shedding of innocent blood. What do we, what, what, what is, what's the abortion tally? 70 plus million. I mean, that alone, that alone. There's something wrong with the society that turn against, turn against the most vulnerable, the most innocent in, in the culture. Something very, very wrong about that. So he turned himself against them as an enemy. He fought against them. And then we're told, then he remembered the days of old. Moses and his people saying, where is he who brought them up out of the sea uh, with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within him? And so, you know, as God's people come into this, this condition of defeat and captivity, they begin to ask these questions. I've seen these questions in other portions of the scripture. You know, where's the Lord? Where's his deliverance? Where, where's his intervention? One of the questions I ask is, Lord, we, want, we, need, you to, we need to see you saving people. When's the last time you saw somebody get saved? It's sad, isn't it? One of the themes that keeps coming up in our prayer meetings is, Lord, save souls. It comes to that point where the, where, the, where the godly people in the culture say, Lord, where are you? Lord, we need you. We need your intervention. And again, he's reflecting here on Moses, the history, you know, the, the, the miraculous deliverances, um, but again, the question is, what about now? Where are they? You know, I got saved in the 70s. And man, God was moving. Everywhere you turned, people were getting saved. People were just walking in the church and getting saved. You know what? We were in a revival. That was 50 years ago. And, and we need it. And it's interesting, this is where I have hope. When you look through over church history, there's been these many, we call them revivals, but you know what they are? They're many Pentecost. They're many Pentecost. 
where about every 50 years, about every generation, and it, were it not for the Spirit of God to stir a revival, you know what? The church would not exist. We need His Spirit. And that, that's... Let me encourage you. Get that in your prayers. And, and here's what I pray. Lord, if you're not going to do... Revive the church at large. Lord, revive us. Revive this church. <laughs> we need it. <laughs> I don't know about anybody else, but we need it. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name. Can you imagine if you were in that crowd? And all of a sudden, the Red Sea just opened up. And everybody had time to escape. And then here, here's Pharaoh and his horsemen and his cavalry down, you know, in that chasm between the waves. And all of a sudden, it just closes up. <laughs> Can you imagine that? I mean, that has to make some kind of impression <laughs> on you. <laughs> I mean, if anything, it's got to put the fear of God in your heart, right? I'll be good, Lord. I'll be good. <laughs> oh, help us, Lord. So again, the big question that, that, that we've seen here in this section is, where is he who, who led his people, his, his, his beloved, you know, throughout history? You know, where, where is he now in this present uh, generation who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. As the beast goes down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest. And so you lead your people and make yourself a glorious name. Man, I'll tell you what, we need that today, don't we? We need the Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, and um, to do a, do a fresh work. I, I don't know. I, I Again, I'm not sure that's going to happen. But you know what? I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I, I would love to see this generation and see kids hungry. There are so many distractions in this culture, in this generation. Oh, man. It would take a mighty move of God to get the attention of this generation. Because we're like, you know what it is? It's, it's today. It's the Church of Laodicea. America's like that. The Church of Laodicea. We're rich and increased with goods, and we have need of nothing. In other words, we don't have need of you, Jesus. We have need of nothing. And I'll tell you what, the richer we get, the more, the greater the need it is that we have of him. He says, look now, he prays here with passion. This is the last movement, 15 through 19. Look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious, where are your zeal? And your strength, the yearning of your heart, your mercies toward me. You know, when I read this here, there's a, there's a verse over in Psalm 80. And Psalm 80 is, is, a, is, a, is a prayer. The whole psalm is a prayer. And it's about a prayer for restoration. And, uh, and, and that's one of the things it says, Look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine which your hand has planted. A great prayer. Lord, look down. Look at our condition. Look at our need. Look at our world. Look down from heaven. The yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me. He says, 
with a question mark, are they restrained? Were they held back for a reason? And here he says, and this is a kind of, this is really interesting because you don't see this kind of terminology in the Old Testament of the Jew identifying God as their father. As a matter of fact, they wouldn't even mention his name. When they would write it, they would write G-God, G-D. They wouldn't even, they, as a matter of fact, they wouldn't even mention his name. They'd say, the name. <laughs> and here Isaiah, the true believer. I never said, I never looked at God as my father or felt he was my father or, or had that kind of passion in my, my verbiage and in my prayers until I became a true child of God. And, and i tell you what, I grew up in the Catholic Church. I went to parochial school my whole life. And I knew the Our Father and Hail Mary and all those sorts of things. But it's only when God comes into your life, when, when you identify. Remember, remember, Paul speaks about it, and he, he refers to what the Lord said in the garden, Abba, Abba Father, Daddy. <laughs> Isn't it amazing when you, is your reaction, there's times where I wake up in the night, in the night and I can't, it's like you start thinking about it. And so many times in the night when I wake up and my hand just goes out like this. David said that. My hand ran in the night. In other words, it's your soul. It's the extension of your soul. You're running to him even when you wake up in the night. Doubtless you are our father. Though Abraham may have been ignorant of us, in Israel, that is Jacob, does not acknowledge us. You, O oh Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. O oh Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Now, one thing is important to realize. The Lord never makes anyone sin. But what happens is his hand of blessing is lifted. Um, because, you know, how quickly the heart wanders. And the heart wanders off, you know. What, what's the the hymn um, by Cooper? I can't think of it. Uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And it, there's a point in your life. There's now. I can remember when I first heard that. As a young, righteous, self-righteous believer, I'd never do that. I'd never do that. Not me. I was like Peter, you know. Though they all deny you, never me. You know? But I can relate to that hymn now. Oh, my heart has wandered so many times. Prone to wander. Oh, Lord, keep me, keep me. <laughs> so, Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways? Hardened our heart from your fear. Return for your servant's sake. The tribes of your inheritance, your holy people have possessed it but a little. Uh, speaking about uh, their possession, you know, the, the promised land. Um, basically, uh, Isaiah is looking forward to them being taken out of the land. And, and, and remember, Moses told them that would happen. He told them they would become a curse um, because of you know, sin and what sin would do to them. Uh, so they, we possessed it but a little our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old, over whom you never ruled. Those 
who were never called by your name. So what they're doing here, there's an admission here. There's an admission there of basically what, you know, where they are, how they've lived. They've lived basically like pagans. Uh, and the thing about an admission, it can become the beginning of repentance. And, uh, and we know it doesn't, doesn't happen, you know, nationally. But I believe it does happen individually, you know, individuals, you know, when as they would hear, you know, the word of God, as they would hear Isaiah's you know, prophecy or whether it was Jeremiah's prophecy or Ezekiel's prophecy. There's something so penetrating and so wonderful and purifying and hopeful about the word of God. When, you know, just when we hear something and it just it resonates with us, that means God has got something for us as we apprehend it and how we apprehend God's truth as we take it by faith. Okay, it's not about feelings. Okay, it's not about feelings, but it's simply about faith. So, Father, we praise you tonight. And we believe your word. Lord, we realize as we read this about Israel of old, there's lessons for the church today. Lord, keep us from wandering off, Lord. Lord, how we thank you for your wonderful mercies. Lord, we see... Lord, the prophet Isaiah mentioning the multitude of loving kindnesses. Lord, you're so good. Lord, we don't want to abuse, exploit, to take advantage of your goodness. And what a good father you are. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege. We have a, we have a greater privilege than that of Israel, that we can call you our father. We can fellowship with you. We can know you like they couldn't know you. And so help us to do that. Help us to draw near. Help us, Lord, we pray, to abide in you. Forgive us, Father, I pray, for our trespasses. Forgive us, Lord, I pray, for the things that perhaps have have drawn us away. Lord, may we keep ourselves.